had this thought as we were singing and as Joseph was leading us through the Lord's Supper. What a glorious reminder of, uh, of the gospel preached in the whole Bible. Um, I had this thought. It's so easy to come to church looking for various segments and parts or looking for a neatly packaged nugget that we can consume and not realizing that every moment is interactive. Every word of Scripture is intended to be held upon, hung upon, exposited in our own mind as we're hearing it, thinking through the implications of those words and the the impact on us in that moment. The taste of the bread, the taste of the cup, and all the implications of such. Do you catch those words and do you interact with them or you just sort of skip over them and just move on so we can eat the cracker and drink the juice, right? But the Lord sent him ahead to meditate on that. That's intended for you to interact with. It's not audiovisual, it's personal. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? I hope you don't miss those moments when the body gathers. Don't look past those. Interact. Hang on every moment. Listen to spirit. And uh, may the Lord do something with that. So that's not in my notes. That's just free. And uh, So let's move. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 11 through 16. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Listen to, listen to the word of the Lord through Paul. His servant here. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God. Who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Who alone has immortality. And who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. In this passage Paul starts to wind up his instruction to young Timothy. As the uh, one of the elders at Ephesus. And in this passage Paul finishes off with some imperatives. He gives a few more imperative commands To instruct Timothy in fighting this good fight of the faith. And he wraps it up with a doxological, a worshipful response that we're going to get to in just a moment. That I pray God uses today to yank you and I further into his kingdom. So we're going to walk through these imperatives. We're going to get the instruction. We're going to wrap up in worship. Okay? That outline makes sense to you? Alright, let's move. The first thing he gives us in the first part of verse 11 is the first imperative command. You guys understand imperative, right? It's a command. It's not optional. It's not a good idea. It is mandated. And by the way, discipleship note. When Scripture gives imperatives, you and I do not get to choose if we want to do it. Rabbit trail, do I take it or do I 
I'm going to bypass that one for now. I'm processing out loud. You don't get to choose whether or not you obey the Lord. You do it. Or you suffer the consequences. Meaning your choices are limited. It's like when I you know, beat my children. Right? I'm clear. Don't do that. That's rebellion. You Okay. You choose to rebel against me. Fine. You're not free to do that. Because the consequence is. This belt is coming off my waist. And it is going to hurt. Consequences. Right? Some of you go. Oh my gosh. Thank his children. Now read Proverbs. Save them from hell. Okay. And so I'm just. Active salvation in the life of my children. It's okay. Um, I'm a board member at DFAX. If you feel like you need to call. I've already ran that by. We're good. Um, these imperatives are not optional in the life of the believer. They're there to save us. They're there to rescue us. Sometimes the commands of Scripture are like, Oh, that's hard. Yes, it is. But it is good for me. So your choices are limited. They're there as mandates because it is good for us. So this first imperative is one that doesn't make me happy, but it is vital. And we're going to get to the one that really makes me happy. And you'll see in just a moment. So this first one is, but as for you, O man of God. Now, now expositionally, he is beginning to narrow his address to Timothy, one of the pastors. And so expositionally, this, this message is for our pastors. It is for us. But as we've talked about already in the book, the mandates of Scripture aren't just for a select few. The reason he is pointing this at Timothy is because it's very likely these men will be the first to die in the arena. Therefore, they must be on their game. But it doesn't fail to apply to the whole congregation at Ephesus. So I say to us this morning, us pastors here, and I say to all of us, hear and obey. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So what's the first imperative to flee these things? What are these things? Well, particularly regarding what we've just learned in chapter 6, he is to flee, verse 3 of chapter 6, the controversies about words. He's to flee controversies about words. Verse 4 and 5, he's to flee divisive talk. Verse 5, he is to flee the religious delusion that believes godliness is a means of gain rather than the gain itself. And we talked about that last week. Flight from useless items as a spiritual strategy is crucial to ministry success. Fleeing from useless things is a vital ministry tool. He's going to tell him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, to flee youthful passions. Flee those. Students, youths, anyone who considers yourself young. Just because it's a passion doesn't mean it's good. Just because it greatly delights your soul doesn't mean you should do it. There are youthful passions that are out of bounds. And it's not necessarily clear if you're breaking a commandment. Just because you feel jacked about it doesn't mean you should go do it. And he's going to instruct Timothy to flee youthful passions. James is going to tell us, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
So it very well could be that flight from useless items is a very crucial ministry tool. So flee petty words and controversies about words. Flee divisive talk. Genesis 39, 12. We just learned a little bit about Joseph. Joseph, what did he do when Potiphar's wife pursued him? He fled. He left his coat in her hands. Like, you got my coat, but you don't have me. I got to get up out of here. And he was gone. Flight from useless items as a spiritual strategy is crucial to ministry to success. When someone wants to nitpick about non-essentials, run. Now, there's been a time in my past where that's an invitation to verbally crucify someone in their presence. And you know what Paul tells Timothy? Run! Run! So if you want to fight about the definition of the word, expect to see my backside. And there's a good shot I can outrun you. I'm going to flee that. We as pastors are going to flee that. You as a Christian, if someone wants to argue about a word, we were talking about this morning, we were meeting as elders and reading through a book, and we're talking about some stuff, and, and I, I still, you know, people want to, the question, it still just makes me angry. Like, it makes me angry. I think there's righteous anger. I think the Bible's clear on that. Here's the righteous anger. You a real church yet? And what they mean is you don't have a building yet. And you're 12 years in, you've obviously failed at ministry. That's a, that's, a, that's a worthless controversy. It's defining words. What's success? Our problem with success in the West is success equals material gaining. The Bible doesn't value the gaining of material. Matter of fact, it warns against it. God doesn't value that. God's values in the kingdom are much different than the values of the world of darkness. And so you know what I've learned to do? When they, people do that stupid stuff, I just run. I leave them. I'm like, man, I hope you have a great day. I turn and I walk off. Flee. Flee. Nitpicking on non-essentials. Run. When somebody starts whispering and being disgruntled, inserting a grain of division, rebuke them quickly. Then run. Run. Do not engage in useless controversies. What do you tell Timothy here? Flee divisive talk. Verse 4 and 5 of chapter 6. He has a craving for controversy and quarrels about words that produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspensions, and constant friction. If words of friction are coming out of your mouth, the people around you should leave you isolated. Hey, don't consider it good ministry strategy to keep loving on someone who's creating division. Run from them. Flee. Is that what it said? As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee them. Run from them. Run. It's not love to allow them to continue to propagate cancer. So Paul tells Timothy, run. Run. The church at Ephesus is much more vital than that person. Number three, as an application here, when someone inserts a theological position that no one in the history of Christendom has held, Or a position that sounds more Republican or Democrat rather than the kingdom. Lovingly and gently insert the truth, then run. Flee these things. Flee divisive talk. He tells him, flee and run. We're to flee anything that dilutes the gospel and creates a division that is non-essential. If it's not essential, then don't divide over it. Submit. 
to God and His authority and trust the Father to be providential. So ministry strategy, church, may look like running from some things. We like to say hit it head on only if it deserves to be hit head on. There's some things that don't deserve to be hit head on. Run. So I say to you and I, all of us together, when these things creep up, flee them. Flee them. The consequence will be to isolate sin. Sin has a trouble propagating itself when it's isolated. This is the purpose in church discipline. You isolate the guilty individual from the community and the protection, Holy Spirit protection of the community, so they're taught not to blaspheme. Run. It is not wrong to flee Things that are evil and produce difficulty such as they did at the church at Ephesus. Which is why Paul had to instruct Timothy to go and do some mop-up duty. Because those things hadn't been done. Because they haven't been taken care of. Rather than fleeing them, people have ran to them. And they've become the tumor in the church. And Paul is having to instruct Timothy on cutting the tumor out. And making sure that the things that cause it are cut away. So therefore flee. Second imperative, found in the second part of verse 11. Pursue the faith. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul's instruction for fleeing from ministerial success is followed by the instruction on what Timothy's to go after. So it's not as though the entire ministry is to be in flight. There are things to turn and go after. So he says to Timothy, pursue. This word pursued is a fun word. It literally means to persecute. The word is literally to persecute and go after. And it is used when talking about the persecution of people. So literally, Paul's telling Timothy, persecute righteousness. He doesn't mean treat righteousness poorly. What he means is go after it hard. What happens in persecution? Right? One group goes after another relentlessly. So what he's telling Paul, relentlessly go after righteousness. Flee this stupid stuff and run hard after righteousness. Run hard after godliness. Run hard after faith. Run hard after love. Run hard after steadfastness. Run hard after Gentleness. John Stott. I'm falling in love with John Stott more and more and more. I've always liked John Stott, but the more I read him, because I kind of like dead guys, right? And so once they die, it's kind of like, oh, they're dead now. Let me read their stuff. And I start reading more Stott. The more Stott I read, the more I go, this man is so saturated with the kingdom of God. And so if you ever pick up some John R.W. Stott, you won't go wrong. But in a little book he wrote called Guard the Truth on page 155, he said this. So we're simply... To run from evil as we run from danger. How simple. Isn't that great? We're to simply run from evil like we run from danger. If I'm in the woods and I'm backpacking and a bear is there. There are rules on how to treat a bear. Right? And you're not supposed to run like immediately. Right? There's some things to do. Right? There's some stuff you're supposed to do. But after kind of the situation is gone, you don't hang out in his area. What do you do? Leave. Why? Because you're at his house. And you may be a tasty morsel. So therefore you flee. So we're to run from evil like we run from danger. I think the problem sometimes is knowing what's evil and what's right. Because sometimes evil is disguised 
as a tasty morsel. We just simply run from evil as we run from danger. And to run after goodness as we run after success. Oh, what would it look like if Christians ran after righteousness the way we run after the false idea of success in Western culture? I'm, ex, I'm expositing Stott's words. It's a short quote, and I'm just expounding. We're simply to run, after, uh, run from evil as we run after danger, or run from danger, and to run after goodness as we run after success. That is, we have to give our mind, time, and energy to both flight and pursuit. What a great statement. We have to give our mind, our time, our energy from fleeing things that are destructive and running after things that are constructive. And Paul breaks down this pursuit in verse 11 into three, uh, three categories. They're in three sets of two. If you read that, you know, I know there's just like six things there. But they're three sets of two things. Let me read them for you. They go together like this. And it's a little clearer in the original language. So I want to help you see it because it's vital. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness. Pursue faith and love. Pursue steadfastness and gentleness. So I've got them in three categories. First category is the first twin couplet of living the ultimate Christian life. And that's pursue righteousness and godliness. Righteousness and godliness. These two characteristics describe ultimate Christian living. Pursuing righteousness and pursuing godliness, which is a huge theme in 1 Timothy. Godliness. Piety. Being like God. Pursue rightness and pursue being like God. Righteousness. The idea of man-to-man relationships. That we are righteous in conduct toward each other. Those are some of the qualifications for being a pastor. Pursue rightness between one another. Right conduct toward each other. Treat each other the way we need to be treated. And sometimes that may look like fleeing from somebody who is injecting sin. That is right treatment. Right conduct toward each other. Sometimes it's a gentle arm. Sometimes it's an ear that listens. But right conduct toward each other. Fairness and love for man to man. The horizontal relationship between each other. Pursue righteousness. But then he says, pursue godliness. Godliness, that man-to-God relationship, the vertical relationship, us to God. Pursue godliness. We've already learned in 1 Timothy 4.8, if you'll flip over with me there, that this is of supreme value. If you'll pop back up to verse 7, we'll read it together because it's one complete thought. Verse 7 and 8 in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, the pursuit of relationship with God is not a waste of time. It is of supreme importance. It has eternal weight and value. Therefore, the pursuit of the vertical relationship between us and God has eternal value that is worth pursuing. Think this through. If you spent time pursuing God as opposed to answering stupid questions, how much better off would your soul be and your stress level be? Right? Flee these things, Timothy. You don't have time for them. Pursue righteousness and godliness. Go hard after treating each other well and loving the Lord. Go hard after those things, Timothy. 
Matthew 6.33 is a glorious summary of these two things. This is a good memory verse. You might know this by heart. If you grew up sort of in a church setting, this was VBS 101, Sunday School 101. Seek ye, a, I'm not going to sing the song. So I almost sang it. And I realized that's stupid because you can't sing. But the, you know, the little song we learned in VBS, Seek ye first. And that's King James Version, which I don't read anymore, but I learned it that way. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Jesus taught us what to go after, didn't he? And it's such a simple little passage. And we were, oh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yeah, whatever. Let me go after success. Oh, yeah. Let me go after what my friends think. We read Jesus' words, I want to seek the kingdom. And we go seek everything but the kingdom. And so he tells us here, in Matthew 6.33, a beautiful summary of these things. Seek the kingdom and His righteousness. Seek the kingdom. We learn in 1 John 2.15-17 what we are opposed to or what force is opposing us. The world system that sets itself up against the truth of God's kingdom. The lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride and possessions. We fight this value system that we learn in 1 John 5, 19 is the work of the evil one. And so if we're going to value godliness and righteousness, there is a conflict taking place between kingdoms. And the war, its battleground is our soul. And there's a constant fight, isn't there? There's a constant war. For godliness and righteousness. If you don't feel that war, you may not be a Christian. Just be blunt with you. That conflict is constantly stirring. And so therefore we are in battle. And we are to be seeking after God's kingdom. Opposed to this world system that has set itself up in the garden at the rebellion. Righteousness. Jesus spent a lot of time in Matthew 5, 21 to 42, getting to the heart of what righteousness truly is. And we are to pursue righteousness and godliness. Those are values in God's kingdom. God doesn't value dealing with wasted things. He values pursuing eternal things. So he tells Timothy, leave these things, flee them, run from them. Controversies about words, divisions, quarrels, people who just want to be fighting constantly, doctrinal things that are untrue. Run, Timothy, run! Leave that cat and come to me, Timothy. Pursue righteousness and godliness. Second couplet of words, category two, faith and love. If you read the pastoral letters, you will discover that Paul regularly and often couples together faith and love. They are always written together. 1 Timothy 1.5, 1 Timothy 2.15, 1 Timothy 4.12, 2 Timothy 2.22, and Titus 2.2. Paul couples faith and love together. Here, the emphasis is on faithfulness and love of others. When Paul tells Timothy here to pursue faith, he doesn't have in mind saving faith. Hint, Timothy's already in. He's a Christian. Alright? We understand that. So it's not, hey Timothy, go get saved all over again. That's not what he's saying. What he's telling Timothy is, pursue faithfulness. Pursue being faithful to the gospel, faithful to the work of God's kingdom. Be faithful to it, Timothy. Give yourself to God's work. Love. 
This kind of love recognizes that people are image bearers and as such have dignity regardless of our sin. This kind of love transcends agreement. This kind of love is the kind of love Jesus shows in providing salvation for His soldiers who are crucifying Him as He pleads with the Father to be gracious because they don't know what they're doing. He tells Timothy, pursue that kind of love. Be faithful to the task and love people the way I have loved you. That kind of love overlooks offenses. That kind of love looks to the individual's need before my own need. And he tells Timothy, that's what you should pursue, Timothy. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but that could be unpacked for a while. Because sometimes love doesn't look like agreement with what one is doing. Sometimes love looks like trying to rescue somebody from a path that will kill them. And they may not realize that you actually love them. But it's the kind of love that is willing to love them in spite of their response to you. That's hard. And so Paul tells Timothy, flee this useless stuff and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love. And he tells him here, category three, the third couplet These glorious ministry qualities of steadfastness and gentleness. Pursue steadfastness and gentleness. 2 Timothy 3, 10-15 is a beautiful example of this. You flip over. I wouldn't plan on reading it. I just sort of put it in my notes in parenthesis. 2 Timothy 3, 10-15. He said, You, however, have followed my teaching... My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the won't-quit determination in the face of opposition. Timothy, pursue that kind of steadfastness. Timothy, grab on to the don't quit attitude and ride it to your grave. You know, I've discovered if I engage in the things that Paul told me to flee, it's hard to be steadfast. As a matter of fact, I've been guilty of quitting because I was holding on to the things God tells us to flee. You know, just Not in my notes, for practical ministry advice. If we flee the junk that the Bible tells us to flee and hold on to the things it tells us to hold on to, I've discovered you actually, in God's strength, can hold on. If you pursue the things that God's told you to flee, there's nothing to hold on to. The Lord's going, dude, I told you. Don't do that. Huh? Why did I get in trouble? Why did this happen to me? Because you didn't listen to me. There's a reason why God refers to us as children and Him as Father. And then gives us children. Because we look at ourselves and go, oh my gosh. I kind of get it now. It doesn't help me. I just recognize I'm stupid now. Right? 
I'm still trying to work on doing it. Steadfast, just don't quit. Then he says gentleness. Man, this is the quality of self-control in dealing with people. This is meekness. Meekness is strength under control. Gentleness is not weakness. It is strength under control. It is the recognition that you could crush them, but choose not to because there's greater reward in obeying Christ. Jesus, we learn in the Scriptures, could have called legions of angels to rescue Him from the cross. But what did He do? He was willing to be crushed for the salvation of His church rather than trumpet His authority. Meekness, strength under control. Paul tells Timothy, be gentle like that. This is Proverbs 29, 11 kind of stuff. It says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. What do we tell people who are frustrated? Just let it out. Just let it out. It's not what the Bible says. It says a wise man, a wise man quietly holds it back, but a fool gives full vent to his spirit. In other words, by Holy Spirit's help, it is a wise thing to sit on your tongue and shut up and trust God. So the next time somebody's struggling, don't tell them, just let it out. Just spill. Don't do that, man. <laughs> I've been guilty of that. I know what it says. But this is that kind of God-given strength under control that says, God is ruling my day. He is in charge. The Lord's hands are covered in lightning and He causes it to strike its mark. I will keep my mouth shut as Job said. I'll place my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I won't do it again. That's gentleness. That's strength under control. So Paul says, pursue that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith and love steadfastness and gentleness. Go after Leave that other junk. That's a waste of your time. Pursue. You might find a conflict in your soul with that. It's easy to turn and fight about useless things, isn't it? That's simple. But putting a lasso around your soul? It's a different fight, isn't it? That's why it's a fight. That's why Timothy is being instructed here don't, don't go after those. Come after these. But Paul's going to come to this third imperative in the first part of verse 12 here. And he's going to instruct Timothy that turning to fight isn't all bad. This is the part I like. Turning to fight is not all bad. Rather, the challenge is knowing what to fight and what to flee. Alright? There are things to flee which we've seen. So let's not think that the Christian and the Christian leaders to be a pushover. Paul instructs on what we are to fight. And that is, verse 12, the first part, fight the good fight of the faith. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight it, Timothy. That's when you put your gloves on. That's when you release your tongue. And you go hard after the truth of the gospel. Flee this junk. 
Leave them standing in their folly. Come after me. And when it's time to fight, here's what to fight for. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy's to flee these things and pursue certain things, but he's to fight over certain things as well. And this isn't just any old fight. This is a fight for the faith that we learn in chapter 6, verse 10 and 21 that some people have wandered away from. This means that Timothy is to fight for the apostolic faith described in these pastoral letters. Paul uses various words and phrases to describe the gospel. He uses this phrase, the truth, in chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 3, and chapter 4. He uses the phrase, the good doctrine. He uses the phrase, the teaching. He says, the trustworthy word in Titus and in First and Second Timothy. In 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy, he uses this phrase, what has been entrusted, or the deposit that has been given to you. And Paul says to Timothy, you fight for that. You go hard after that. Timothy is to guard this message, is handed down and recorded in Scripture. The language here in verse 12 is intense. Paul uses this language already in chapter 1, verse 18, where he told him to fight the good fight. And it's military language. And it lends itself to metaphors of military engagement. The language suggests an agony, an agonizing, even an athletic agony like that of a boxing match, which Paul's going to use in 2 Timothy 4 and in 1 Corinthians 9. The language here to fight the good fight of the faith is a little different than what he's already used. And it literally means to agonize the good agony. This is how Paul describes his work in the ministry at the end of his life. As we read just a moment ago in 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. I am being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've agonized the good agony, Timothy. It's hard for us to hear that language and think that's a joy or the byproduct of that is good. The best illustration I have of that is this week for me. And, and, and it's an illustration. It may seem cheesy to some of you guys, but our, one of our workouts this week at uh, CrossFit UCS was uh, three rounds. It's like three times through this. And here's what the through this looks like. Half mile run, 800 meters. 800 meter run. You remember this one? No, did you do this one? You don't remember? You slept since then? See, I know you probably beat me in time. I looked at other people's times. Half mile run, 21 overhead squats, and 15 toes to bar. That's where you hang from the bar, and you momentum your toes up, touch the bar 15 times. Do that three times, as fast as you can. Halfway through round one, I was hating life. Cursing people. Myself, the sunshine, and the hot air. Halfway through round two, I was catching my wind and speeding up. Round three was my fastest round. I finished faster than I started and got the little nice endorphin rush, which is why I do that, because I'm an addict. Not because I like working out, because I'm a drug addict. I like endorphins, so just being honest. I was hurting, but I was hurting in a good way, and it's the kind of hurt that lends itself to life functionality. I can have my 85-pound kid in my arms at night asleep, and I can stand up off the couch, no problem. So it's life functionality. I can do things I want to do fairly well. But function like that costs some blood, sweat, and calluses. It hurts, but it's good for me. It's a good agony. 
It's agonizing the good agony. It's worth fighting for, for functionality. That illustration is just a cheesy little, tiny, physical illustration of what it is to agonize the good agony of the faith. If you fight for the gospel, it will cost you something. It will cost you reputation. It will cost you friends. But it's a good agony. And the reason it's a good agony is because it is an agony that leads to eternal life. The gospel is worth fighting for because it is the power of God for salvation. We leave the gospel, there is no transformation for anyone. We leave the gospel, there's no continued sanctification for us. We leave the gospel, we're not Christians. We leave the gospel, hell is our destination. So the gospel is worth fighting for and it is the hill on which we should die. So therefore, Paul tells Timothy here, the byproduct is going to be good for you, so fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy. Flee this junk, come after me and open your mouth and put your feet in the dirt and fight for the faith of the gospel. Gospel is worth fighting for. The worldview of the gospel is worth struggling over. Because it's the worldview of God's kingdom that's here now and is coming in full force each and every day. This is what we war over. It's this kind of mentality that explains the life of men like William Wilberforce. Who will spend their days, their nights, their reputation, their careers for the abolition of slavery. And three days before he dies, mission achieved. He did not waste his life. He died with nothing, but he gained the kingdom. That's a fight worth fighting. That's a man who put his feet in the dirt and said, I will not be moved. That's Adoniram Judson. You can, you can take my wife, you can take my work, you can take my health, but the gospel is worth fighting for in Burma. Fight the fight like Hudson Taylor. I endure the Boxer Rebellion. I endure difficult circumstances because inland China is worth it. The gospel is worth it. We fight the fight like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We live on the values of God's kingdom for the sake of God's kingdom and the preservation of the gospel. That's what we fight. By the way, these people were people who were engaged in the public arena. This is not some guys hanging out in the corner of a church attending their fourth Bible study of the week. These were guys who read their Bible and said, gee, you got to go do it. So they went and they did it and they died happy people. David Brainerd, 29 years old, he died. It weren't for him. The Native American mission might have been a lost cause. Oh gosh, he died so young. No, he didn't. He lived his full life. His days were marked for him. And he lived them to the glory of Jesus Christ, fighting for the advance of the gospel. You can't do that if you're fleeing or if you're pursuing things that don't matter. That's a life with a singular focus. Willing to fight for the gospel where the gospel needs to be fought for. We've got to contend for the faith of the kingdom and be willing to die for it. Let me ask you this question. What cause of the kingdom are you willing to lose your life over? 
Here's how our town will be transformed. You ready? Not by you starting a new ministry. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast and dough. One microscopic yeast thingy turns a whole lump of dough into a great tasting piece of bread. It's not going to look like starting a new ministry. It's going to look like you recognizing I'm passionate about homeless people. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go start working among homeless people. I'm just going to go start working among homeless people. You don't need a line item in the budget. It's you. You are the leaven. They are the dough. Go be among them. Do the work. And wait for God's kingdom to come in power. And if you die before the kingdom comes, then you just trust that you are one who fell on the wire for somebody to walk on your back to take up the work after you die. You go be faithful. You go be faithful. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Judson wasn't going, Hey, I'm not going to go if you don't go. Got to go. Whatever. Let's go get it done. What are you willing to lose your life over? What are you willing to give up your finances over? What are you willing to give up all things for so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would advance? That's what we fight for. By the way, there's plenty in Rome to do. Plenty. And it's going to take time. It's going to take time. The final imperative Paul gives Timothy here is the fight for joy. The fight for joy. It's the fourth imperative and it's found in the second part of verse 12. First part, fight the good fight of the faith. And then he says here, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of eternal life. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. You ever wonder what eternal life is? It's not living forever. You're going to live forever. Heaven or hell? The kingdom of heaven, new heavens, new earth. Jesus says you're king or in hell. And Jesus will still be your king. So you'll do it in his pleasure or his punishment. You're going to live forever. That's not what eternal life is. You ready to hear Jesus on eternal life? And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What is eternal life? To know God and to know His Son, Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is not on the possession of salvation, but in the quality of the experience regarding salvation. As we've already said, salvation belonged to Timothy. He's repented, believed the gospel, stepped into leading as an under-shepherd. Paul's exhorting young Timothy here to sink his teeth into the knowledge of God and ride that thing for all it's worth. He is appealing to the quality of the experience of following Jesus Christ. One of the great battles we're going to fight in knowing God and trusting Him for all He is, is this fight for joy in God. And the quality of our experience of knowing Him. Satan tempted Eve by suggesting that the Father was holding out on them. He knows that you'll be like Him, knowing good and evil. They already were like Him. They're perfect image bearers. So let's tempt her to think God's holding out on her. John tells us that eternal life isn't living forever. We're going to do that in one place or the other as we've already stated. Most of my temptations are the same as they were for Adam and Eve. Disbelieving God's goodness 
And somehow he's holding out on me and owes me something. And as a result, the loss of joy. And I wallow in my anxiety and my fretfulness. Anybody tracking with that? Part of the greatness of eternal life is this Psalm 1611 glory that you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's what eternal life is supposed to taste like. That's the hors d'oeuvre of eternal life. You make known to me the path of life. At your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. That's eternal life. Tasting this glorious joy of following and pursuing Christ. The problem is my temptation is to disbelieve that Jesus is enough. To know the Father, Son, and Spirit is to taste the joy of life with God before the fall and all the pleasures of knowing Him. One of Satan's great ends is to get God's people to fret and not enjoy God. We learn in the great catechism, and you guys raised in Presbyterian life know this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's bad grammar and good theology. Grammatically, it should say man's chief ends are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The only problem is those men understood the Isaiah 43, 7 reality that enjoying God and glorifying Him are one thing. Eternal life is to know Him and enjoy Him. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there is fullness of joy. So to glorify you is to enjoy you. And so therefore they said man's chief end is glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. We were created to glorify God. We are created to enjoy God. So is God glorified in my anxiety and worrying if He cares for me or if He's holding out for me? No. God's glorified when His people enjoy Him. And God greatly desires that we know Him. Father sent the Son to show us Himself. That's how much He loves us. And the Son sent the Spirit to remind us of truth and counsel us toward the truth of Jesus so we can see and know the Father. And my great struggle is not against external forces. My great struggle is for joy in God alone against a world system set up to assault my joy in God. When is Jesus going to be enough for me? Paul tells Timothy here, take hold of eternal life and live for all it's worth on this side of the establishment of the kingdom. So I say to all of us, take hold of eternal life and enjoy it and show Jesus to be grander than life itself. I would argue the epitome of pastoral ministry is not being a good counselor, not even being a good preacher, but being one who enjoys God and enjoys the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Timothy, pursue that. To all of us, I say, pursue that. Take hold of eternal life and enjoy it for all you can milk out of it, this side of the full kingdom being established. Finally, we'll close out here. Verse 13 to 16, worship was the response. Worship is the response. Paul does this neat thing here in verse 13 to 16 because when you read, he says, I charge you in the presence of God. Now I'm looking at that. I'm looking for the imperative. So I'm kind of translating, doing my little nerd things. That's what I want school to be. And so I'm looking through that and playing through that. And I'm like, there's no imperative here. It's, it's, not, it's not even close to the imperative. Uh, matter of fact, it's an interesting construction. I'm sitting here going, okay, Lord, this makes sense that this should be 
This should be an imperative because you got to charge you. It's not. It's present. It's active, indicative. You don't know what that means. You probably don't care. Paul closes his instruction here with a response of worship. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. In other words, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, Jesus Christ, and Jesus kept this testimony, so I charge you, he's watching, he's present. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach till the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he'll display at the proper time. Who will display it? God, who is he? He is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Paul closes his instruction with a response of worship. One of the reasons we order our service the way we do at Three Rivers, and the reason we put it together the way it's put together is on purpose. Because we see that in the flow of Scripture, particularly Isaiah chapter 6, that God reveals Himself, and then God's people respond to God. In our text today, Paul instructs Timothy, and then he ends with this glorious doxological exaltation of worship. And it's all built on this instruction to obey the Lord. The charge to Timothy to keep the commandment unstained is understood. By everything I can find in this text and everything I've read on people who have commented on this, it's understood to be the command to shepherd the people of God and to fight the fight of the faith. The imperative's already been given. So the charge is keep the faith, Timothy. But now Paul gives the power to achieve the imperative commands. To put it another way, the imperative commands, the four of them that we just read, is the what. The charge that he gives here in the present tense is the why. Why should you keep the commands, Timothy? Why? Because Jesus did, and here's who he is. Let me make it real simple for you. We are to flee junk, pursue the faith, fight the fight of the faith, and take hold of eternal life. Why? Because Jesus kept it. And he was on trial. He testified to who he is and what he came to do. And therefore, as a result of who he is and what he did, we should keep the commands. In other words, we respond in worship. Keeping the commands is a part of our worship. It's a fallacy to think that we come in and we sing songs and that epitomizes our worship. That's a part of it. It's a part of it. But the singing of a song in worship of God and exalting back to Him His glories is because we have kept the commands and we see and we know and we can't help but exalt and delight in Him because He's a good Father. We've obeyed. We've tasted the fruit and we can't help ourselves. One of the reasons why I think it's hard to come and worship is because we've done nothing in obedience to Him. And it's fake. It feels forced and contrived. 
When you taste the kingdom, worship will happen. It's, Paul comes to the end of this deal and he doesn't even charge him with an imperative. Timothy! Timothy, go worship the Lord. He just breaks in the praise. Jesus kept the commandment. And Jesus is this. And he unpacks these glories In verse 14, 15, and 16, he says, which he will display at the proper time, meaning Jesus is going to come and it's going to be in his time. So he's running history. Isn't that cool? So he'll display it at the proper time. And he is the one who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Him whom no one has seen or ever can see to him be... Honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Jesus kept the commandment. And he told us a little bit of his identity here in the mission. I want to give you a few. I want to unpack these little pieces. And then we're going to sing together in response to worship. But he comes here and he says some really cool things about the Lord. Who kept the commandment. And showed us who he is. And what his mission is. The God who is present and in charge. And granting life to all things that need life. He says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He says, Timothy, the reason you keep the commandment is because God is the one present and he's giving life and he's watching. Hey, check this out. You know how the ministry goes forward is God gives life to it. He is the one who gives life to all things. If the ministry goes forward, it's because God granted life into it. He breathed life into it. So Timothy... Keep these commands. Timothy, keep the faith. Flee these things. Pursue these things. Timothy, it's God giving life to it. Verse 14 and verse 15. The God who is going to come at the proper time and make it all good. Timothy, why do you keep the charge? Why do you keep the gospel? Because he's coming. He's coming in his proper time and he's going to make everything right. Verse 15. The the other part of verse 15. He is the God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has absolute authority over all powers, both human and divine. So Timothy, keep. Keep it. Number four, verse 16, the God who is literally the bestower of life and immortal like we're not. Jesus owns immortality. And any immortality we have is because he has given it to us and keeping the commandments. And so therefore, hey, by the way, there is nothing that can take your life until Jesus is ready to take it. So Timothy, to this God who is immortal and the God who bestows life, Timothy, keep the commands. There's nothing that can take you until Jesus is ready to take you. When you die, it's because Jesus is ready for you to die. So, Timothy, keep the commands. No fear, Timothy. He's sovereign over life. Number five, verse 16 again. The God who is completely holy and pure. He says here he lives in an approachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. This God who is completely holy and pure. So, Timothy, you pursue holiness and purity. And finally... The God who deserves honor and the complete rule that is rightfully His. To Him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Jesus is the why for the what. And Paul unpacks in this doxological praise who Jesus is as the reason why Paul should keep the commands. And I say to us as a fellowship, keep the commands. Why? Because Jesus did well in keeping the commands and is the power for our ministry in keeping them. And as we do what He's given us, He will breathe life into the work and He will cause it to advance because that's how good He is. Do you think He's worth worshiping? I think He's worth worshiping. 
And even if in our life we never see what some would consider ministerial success, he's worth worshiping because he will get his mission done, even if it's on our dead backs. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what we're in as a church. That's what we pursue. It's not fluff. It's true. It's true things. So I invite you to join me, join us together as we sing to the Lord. And make much of Him for who He is and what He has done is the power to get the mission done. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today and we pray Your grace to us as we come to worship in response to Your truth. God, I pray You would empower our response. Make it real. Make it true. Make it legitimate. May there be no fake in what we bring to You today, but may it be a true response of joy. Lord, help us to keep the things You've taught us to keep this week. I need Your help. I need Your help. Help me to fight for joy. And may you be glorified in that, we pray in Jesus' name.